0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Father, we, we sang, moving into this time of preaching, we sang a very simple song. It seemed like it was the same line over and over again. And sometimes we stop listening when we say the same line over and over again, but there's something in that line that perhaps pressed into us should have. We need you near to us, and your nearness to us is your goodness to us. We don't ask you, we don't actually even profit from you departing and leaving us some other type of good as if there was one. We ask you for, we need, and we profit most from when you draw near to us. You do good to us in that way. You give us yourself. So I do pray, Lord, as we sang, would you be near to us? Would you, in this moment, in this room, would you fill this place and Draw our minds and hearts to you and open up your word to us and speak. I don't know how many of us there are here, but you are not bound by numbers. Would you speak to each one individually? Cause pieces cause pieces of this passage and pieces of this sermon to, to catch particular sets of ears and minister to particular needs. Send your Spirit who communicates your presence to us. Send him to powerfully reside here and to dwell powerfully in the hearts of your believers here and to work powerfully on the hearts of those who are not yet yours. We ask you to speak. Father, that's what's good for us. So speak. Be near. Make your word clear. Grow us up. We look at this passage today, Lord, that that has admittedly many twists and turns in it. Would you help me? Would you give me grace to make the main issues clear enough that we can understand them? Would you give each of us attention to enough of the details to follow your word? Would you make it run and live and change us? Build your church, Lord, and honor Christ, I ask and I pray in his name. Amen we turn our attention this morning to the end of Philippians chapter 1 last week in verses 25 and 26 we saw Paul begin to swing the focus away from himself towards the church up to this point he had been writing about the things that he praised God for, the things that he asked God for in petition, what it was like for him being in jail, how he was viewing the gospel advancing through his own sufferings, how he was looking at his own upcoming trial and what he expected the result of that to be. It's all been about him so far, but he began last week to switch our attention and turn towards the church. We saw that he, when talking about himself, is supremely radically focused on the gospel, that it be known and advanced in his life. And surprise, surprise, he's going to be concerned about that for the church also. So while he swings attention towards the church, he does not really change topics. He's kind of a a one note song, which is glorious because it's the note. He is supremely concerned that in his own life that to live is Christ for himself and for the church, that for the church to live be Christ. And so he's going to talk about that and and exhort the church along those same lines, using different words in the passage this morning, but really communicating essentially the same point. Whatever trial one might face, he's looking at a physical trial before a physical judge, but whatever trial one might face, oh, I am confident. That the Spirit of God will come and will give me, and may he give you, boldness that Christ would be known in your life, delivering you from all shame and from all turning away from him, that the gospel will be advanced. That's his goal for the church. That's the summary of where we're going this morning in verses 27 through the end. Let me read the passage, and I'm going to read the whole thing, 27 through 30. And I'll pass back through it to make three different observations, but the third one's going to be a little shorter because we're going to come back to this passage next week and pick up a few more of the things at the very end. I'm going to read Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent... Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to make three observations unpacking this central point. Here's my main point for this morning. God calls us to stand as citizens of and for the gospel. God calls us to stand as citizens of and for the gospel. And the first half of that is the first observation. I'll pick it up right now. God calls us to live as citizens of the gospel. And I want to be clear, in using the word call, now what I really mean is command. There's, there's nothing optional here. He expresses this in verse 27 in an imperative. God calls each Christian, each Christian together as a body to live as citizens of the gospel. Verse 27, we find Paul's opening statement an imperative begins with only, because he's just been talking about the various things that may happen to him. He may be released, and he may come to them and see them soon, but never mind what happens to me, and when I might come and when I might see you, only this, this only for you. No matter what, this. So he's drawing our attention in to focus on one thing and then he gives a command when he draws our attention. He's serious about this. Only this. that You would live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Now I'm using the word citizen though it doesn't really appear in my text there. Why not? If you might have a footnote that points out. Literally the passage says that we would live as citizens Worthy. So he's calling us to live in a certain way, but he's doing it with a little bit of a twist. He's using a particular word that raises the idea of citizenship, which would have been of importance in the city of Philippi. Additional weight there in a place like Philippi or perhaps like America. Perhaps in the context of an Uduk tribe. In Philippi, in America, in a a situation with a tribe, where people are used to thinking of themselves as a people, where there is a a citizenship, a membership, of which we are proud. People in Philippi, a Roman colony, would have been accustomed to and proud of the fact they thought of themselves, we are Romans. Romans. You gotta have the posture. Roman. The whole world is Roman and barbarian. We are Roman. The greatest place on earth. There's the unique Roman feel of this place. All of the clothing and all of the culture and all of the architecture and all of the laws spoke Rome. All of the religious habits, Rome, the government. It strong military ties, large ex-military presence in this town. Roman. Citizenship in Rome was incredibly valuable, important, and desirable. And you can understand that. You can easily identify with that. I, I certainly hope you're getting my drift here. You can certainly identify that. You can, if you feel the, the chest-thumping pride in the, the song, I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. American. American. And, and you can feel some of the, the endearing warmth if you think of baseball, mom, and apple pie, America. And you can feel some of the sting of the opposite. If That's un-American. Don't you love your country? Those different takes, and I, I look out here, I know some of us are not Americans, but you've probably lived here long enough to get that. And whether you are French or Romanian or Chinese, you get it. The Middle Kingdom feels the same way. China. Uduk. Citizenship defines us in profound ways. It it clarifies our history, where we're from, what our community is, who my people are tells us what our rights and our privileges and our responsibilities are. A Roman citizen, for instance, knew that he could not be beaten without first being condemned, and he could never be crucified. That's for the barbarians. A great privilege. Even the worst of a Roman criminal would never see the cross. Americans, we have liberties and rights and privileges and legal obligations, etc. It's how citizenship works. It defines us. It matters. It gives us a direction, a source of identity, and very often that of esteem or honor or pride in a good or in a bad way. And Paul's word to the church is this, only, let me draw all your attention to one thing and then command it of you. Live as worthy citizens of the gospel of Christ. Which is not live as citizens of Rome in a manner worthy of Christ. As I say that, of course, that could be said too, and that would be true also. But there's something going on here in the use of language. It's something more radical than just saying that. Akin to, switch context, if you say to a Christian, this is not your home. Well, of of course it's your home. On the one hand, we all live here. We're going somewhere this afternoon, somewhere this evening. You're going to lay your head down somewhere. That's, That's home. Not really. I'm a Roman. No, you're not. I'm an American. Not anymore. Yeah, no. Feel the tension there. I'm not saying, and I do not want to say that we should all pretend that we are not a particular ethnicity, nationality, that we have no ties to any countries. I'm saying this is, Paul's drawing our attention, commanding something radical about a reorientation of our thinking. You are no longer a Roman. You are no longer an American, no longer fill in the blank, whatever you are. As look out, I know we are many different things here. Something has changed. Your citizenship is in heaven now, and you have to play that out here on the earth, indeed, as Romans or Americans or whatever, but you must think of yourself as different. You have an allegiance to something else now. That has happened. A new citizenship that clarifies a new history for you, a new community. You have a new people that you are. You have new rights and new privileges and new obligations, new directions, new goals, new values, a new citizenship, a new loyalty. The old is gone. The new has come. Conduct yourselves as a good citizen, as a citizen worthy of not Rome, not the United States, but of the gospel of Christ as a subject loyal to the gospel, that is, to the faith. We talked about this last week the faith that defines everything about who God is and who I am and what my problem is, was before him and what God did to initiate a solution to that problem and what God did to initiate the opening of my eyes to that solution and what God did to draw me to it and then what God has done to preserve me in it and the direction that God has told me to walk and what he has promised me along the way, his presence and his glory in my life now and what he's promised me that is coming all the way at the end, that is the faith, that is who I that who you are if you are a christian you're not an american anymore of course you are no you're not gloriously not an american not chinese not uduk conduct yourselves live with This God who saves in Christ's cross, this God, His work, the gospel, central to defining you. Live with that at the center of your life. That's His command, the one thing. If you think about it, it's just another way of saying to live is Christ. So He says it's true of Him. Now He commands it to be true of us. To live is the gospel of Christ. It, he, sets your agenda more than your earthly nationality or ethnicity, more than your gender, more than your age or your economic class or your education or your career path, more than your parents, more than your family, more than anything. The gospel. The faith defines us. Now, what I've just done here is I've I've woven together two things. I've I've stated a bunch of facts. The gospel, this defines you. You are different. But, But actually, the command is not just to know that. The command is to live in a manner worthy of that, that matches that reality. To live in a manner loyal to this new you, this new people, this new reality, this new king and kingdom. It doesn't say yet how, what that means, but verse 27 with this command in it is the lead command for the whole paragraph and in fact for the rest of the book. Because he's going to go on to talk about what it means to live as a citizen worthy. So he doesn't yet tell us all the details, and and he won't tell us all the details in any one place. Some are coming up, some important ones are coming up, but it's worth stopping right here to cause a, a pause for reflection on a pretty simple question. Do you want to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel? Some of us said yes. And I'll ask you a second time. Really? Do you want to? Because there are a whole lot of wonderful things about being an American. Or whatever you are. A whole lot of attractive things. Some of those are in opposition to what it means to be a loyal citizen of the gospel. So be careful about too quickly saying, absolutely, yes, I want to live, because that's going to mean something a new people. You have a new family that's more your family than your family is. Some of us don't live like that. You have a new perspective on the money given into your hands. It belongs to God, given to you for use in his kingdom. Some of us don't live like that. You have a new perspective on what it means to, to have a relationship with, with another person, what what it would look like to engage with somebody purely in love to them for their good rather than just for your own get. And some of us don't live like that. There are ways that... It, that America works. There are ways that we are accustomed to living and, and carrying on life. Ways we evaluate what success looks like and what failure looks like, often tied to numbers, that are very American and not very Christian. So, do you want to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel, or, or do you really want to be an American Christian? I, I can't be very specific about, I can't be very specific about your life and the issues that you face. I can only ask the question and raise the, the possibility that perhaps right at the front, repentance is in order. This is the greatest problem facing the church probably throughout all of time the greatest problem facing the church now certainly is the the worldliness of the people of God other things are re, are related to it we don't pray we don't read our Bibles but th- those are those are subsidiary issues I'm talking about in the as we engage with the world out there, our greatest problem is that we are just like them. We value what they value. We live like they live. We are citizens right alongside of them, engaged in all the same stuff that they are, valuing the same things they value. The worldliness of the church is a significant problem. So, I ask you to stop and think. Consider the kingdom. Consider the kingdom. We sang a song earlier. can't remember the words exactly. Something about never-ending and everlasting. Do you realize every single kingdom that anyone has ever given allegiance to is sand running through fingers. These, these men were extremely proud. Roman. What's Rome these days? Assyrian, Egyptian. France was something under Napoleon. America will be looked back upon as a former world power. There's only one Everlasting kingdom. There's only one place in which citizenship will matter forever, in which the privileges bestowed by that membership last and actually satisfy. That's been given to you, Christian. Do you want to live and walk in a way that matches that citizenship and that honors that citizenship, and as we're going to see, commends that citizenship to others? If you don't want to, I would just suggest you haven't actually understood the kingdoms the kingdom of God versus all of the kingdoms of men. You haven't actually understood them. There is glory that has been poured out on you when you were transferred from darkness into light, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Glory poured out on you. Embrace that kingdom and let all the other ones fade away. Do you want to? You're called to be citizens of this gospel, of this kingdom, and to live in a way that matches it, that's worthy of it. The next couple of points expand a little bit on what that looks like. Second observation. Good citizens of the gospel are filled with the Spirit for unified gospel advancement. So what does it look like to be a citizen worthy? Good citizens of the gospel are, a couple things here, filled with the Spirit for unified gospel advancement. So he gives this main command here, verse 27, and the rest of the passage flows out of it. And Paul then begins to talk about, this is what I, I, I want of you, I command of you, and then whether I come or not, when I come or not, I want to hear, at least, if I don't see it with my own eyes, I want to hear that you are, two things here, standing and then striving. I want to hear that you stand, that's his main verb here, in one spirit. And that then, first part, enables the second part. We'll see how that works in a second. In most of our Bibles, spirit is not capitalized, so it might not be immediately obvious that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And indeed, some do think he's talking about kind of a human spirit, like he says in the very next phrase, of one mind. So kind of of one human spirit, of one mind, like repeating himself. Well, apart from the fact that Paul doesn't ever use that kind of language There are a number of other ways that we can tell that he means the Holy Spirit. I think the easiest one to see, perhaps, is just right in this immediate context to look right down into chapter 2. So, in our verse, notice he has one spirit, encourages them to stand together in that one spirit, and then talks about being of one mind. That's the pairing. And if you look right down in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we find the same thing. He's going to talk. 2 verse 1 about the church's participation in the Spirit undoubtedly the Holy Spirit there and that leads to then being of the same mind, being of full accord of one mind, same progression of thought there which shouldn't surprise us because our passage for today served as like a header for the whole rest of the book particularly the next chapter introduces these topics and fleshes them out, starting with everybody together in one spirit, therefore then having one mind. So he comes to this urging us to stand in one spirit. That's what he wants to hear of the church. I belabor this point because of the enabling aspect of it. It's going to talk about striving for the gospel. That's very difficult to do if you haven't got the enabling piece first. Stand in one spirit. To stand in something, to stand in someone is to depend on to resolve to rely on to lean on this is where I am this is what I hope in to stand in the spirit then is to depend on him with resolve with commitment all of us then the church as a whole we each individually of course but then as a whole he's talking to the whole group are being summoned To cast our dependence on the Spirit of God and to submit ourselves individually, me and you you and you and you, all of us together to stand in one Spirit. To together depend on Him and Him alone. such that what he values and how he sees things and how he would influence one is how he influences all of us, grabs us all and conforms us to himself and and transforms how we think and how we see things so that we all together are are drawn and changed as a unit. So the Spirit of God functions, if, if you will, a little bit like that Onion bagel from Einstein's that you wish your friend had not ordered. Because what did it do to the whole bucket? The cinnamon one tastes like onion, the blueberry one tastes like onion, the plain one tastes like onion, the potato one tastes like onion, they all taste like onion. They are different. There's cinnamon on that one and there's a blueberry in that one. They are different. They are all onion flavored. And if you like that, great. The Spirit of God takes a whole church full of people who are each different. He doesn't make you not male, not like math. He takes you who are this way and you who are this way and flavors all of us so that we are a unit and then are, are directed in a certain way or, or on a certain path Something something he, he's grabbing us, putting us together so that we all are alike and then using us for something he intends that to have an application so he's not just talking about stand in the spirit for unity's sake alone it's very much about one spirit Unity, you all together, but then he continues right on to the next one. This is the critical enabling piece. Next piece, that you would with one mind, arm in arm, linked up, contend for the faith of the gospel. Unity has this goal, that we all would be gathered together and and turned into, if you will, an army, or perhaps, catching the word that's used there, a team, because the word contend, its root word has a sports application, athletics in the root word, it turns us into a team, each individual, different, different pieces, different parts, but as a team together to contend for the faith of the gospel, arm in arm, not individually, as a unit. So the Spirit is needed to conform us to, to bind us together and to give us all a singular focus to grab each individual Christian and say you, I grab you I change you, I transform you so that you now personally yourself are concerned to use all that you are to live for Christ, that is to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel and you, I take you and all that you are, same perspective and I put you together, a great team Now this team, together, arm in arm, will contend for the gospel. That is, the faith. There's a lot of ways that could happen. The simple point, before I elaborate just a little bit on ways that could happen, the simple point is that worthy citizenship involves Spirit unity and the advancement of the gospel. Worthy citizens, if you think of athletics or warfare, in other words, worthy citizens are in a match on offense. Not purely on defense, and not, not in a match. We can't go out there by ourselves. We are to go out there together. But we all are to go out there together and say we are about pushing the ball down court, downfield. We must be clear about that. Nobody in ancient Rome. Ha- should add, ancient polytheistic pluralistic Rome had any more problem than polytheistic pluralistic America has with you by yourself in your own home believing whatever it is you believe, worshiping whatever thing you worship. No problem at all. The problem comes if somebody were to step into the public arena and contend for it particularly in contrast to the established religion of the emperor. You are a citizen of Rome, and we venerate, we honor, we bow down to, we hail Caesar, Lord of Lords, great Savior, terms used to describe him. Hail Caesar, Lord of Lords, great Savior. Do not come out here into the public sphere and say there is a different Lord of Lords, a different Savior, the only one you will hail and worship. That will create problems. But I command you only one thing. Live as worthy citizens of the gospel. First thing I'm going to mention is united in the Spirit, step out and contend. Now, ways that might happen. That might happen in verbally stating, this is the truth. This, this, is, this is the message from God. This is the real God. This is his real book. This is his real plan of salvation. That might happen in language like that. It might happen in simply not participating in when everybody stands up at the local feast and says, Hail Caesar, you stay seated. That will be noticed. In, in our day and age, it might, might happen when around the coffee station at work, the latest discussion about gay marriage comes up. That will be the issue. I, I'm no great prognosticator, but I, I think that will be the issue for us. Realize that the battle's already over. Gay marriage is reality. Worship of Caesar is reality in Philippi. The question is, are you going to stand up or stay seated? Now, there are ways to be snooty about that. I'm not commending that. We, we are called to contend for and that at least includes making the truth known off of our lips but in love so the truth truly but in love and that does not give us the the, the truth piece does not give us warrant to avoid the love piece it does not give us warrant to be snooty or arrogant or, or in some way deliberately offensive the possibilities are, are endless, and so I, there's no way we could even think about all of them, but, but the time will come at work, in your neighborhood, it'll come. And what do you say about it? Where does your loyalty lie? Whose kingdom do you live in? This kingdom believes one thing very clearly. to contend for another kingdom's Lord is required of worthy citizens. That will surely bring opposition. We should not expect that to declare that the emperor has no clothes on is going to be just fine with everybody else, including him. It will indeed bring opposition, and the third point goes into what will happen when the opposition comes. But we need to be really clear about this. And I, ad, I admit to you, this is. I was, I was a member of Campus Crusade for Christ for Crew, now I guess it's called, for years, over over a decade, as a student and as a staff member of Campus Crusade. I've shared my faith with non-Christian people, of different ages a lot of college students different ages more times than i can remember counting more times than i could count it never got easy some people it it's it's simple it never was easy for me and so when i find myself in situations in my workplace in, in my neighborhood where i'm seeing to contend for the gospel here. I still, you know, it draws my breath a little short, and I'm wondering, what do I do here? How do do I engage with this? What do I say in this conversation with these folks? How do I not imply I agree? That's tricky. So I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying this is all about you. I'm the religious guy. I've got it all down but what I am trying to point out is that live in a manner worthy of the gospel, live as worthy citizens, first thing I want to hear about is that you all standing in the Spirit are contending in the face of Caesar. Verse 30, just like I am engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have, I'm going to go actually talk to Caesar himself here shortly. We've read enough of the book of Acts to know what he's going to say. He's going to tell him there is a Lord and it's not you. But he is confident, considering himself in verse 19, that with the help of the Spirit he will be delivered He will be delivered from the shame of abandoning Christ and living in an unworthy way. He'll be delivered from that. I don't know if I'm going to be delivered on my life, but I will be delivered by the Spirit to boldly proclaim this Christ, to contend for this word. You must also. That can't happen without us being an us, and it can't happen without the Spirit. But it must happen. It must happen. Together, filled with the Spirit, we are to contend for the advance of the gospel, speaking it, showing it in love, and maybe most importantly, by rejecting and opposing the false gods of the nation all around us. Politely and graciously, but clearly saying, that is not the truth. And that will certainly be opposed, almost such that you should find if it's not opposed, I might not have communicated it very clearly. What I meant to say was, that's wrong. <laughs> now, I I don't mean I don't mean to say this in any way uh, brashly or arrogantly about. Um, in in some way, a bad way towards people who are not Christians. I'm trying to talk to us, and including me in that, and saying, I should expect that if I have been clear that this message itself is so different that if I have been clear, it will be opposed. It's not a tomato-tomato sort of thing. It's black, white. And those who are in the darkness do not like and and do in fact oppose the light. No matter how graciously we approach. But we must approach. But there will be opposition. It will be opposed. And that takes us to the third point. Which as I said is going to be Shorter because I need to. There is just too too much here about particularly verses twenty nine and thirty that I got to come back to next week. But the final observation: good citizens of the gospel are fearless through ordained through ordained suffering. Good citizens of the gospel are fearless through ordained suffering. Verse 28 continues describing what what he wants to hear from them. He wants to hear that they are in one spirit, with one mind, arm in arm, striving, verse 28, and not frightened in anything by the opponents, anything that your opponents do. He's assuming opposition, assuming that it would be frightening opposition, and says, don't be frightened by it. which is easy to say. And thankfully there is an enabling piece here also. The enabling piece before about if we're going to go out and contend, we first have the Spirit filling us and drawing us together as, as a unit. Well, there's an enabling piece here too. and It's a complicated line of thought here, but if I, be simple, if I want to be simple about it, I just say it's the word ordained in that point. Fearless through ordained suffering. Understanding the word ordained is the, is the help, is the enabling piece. And the call to be fearless. So Paul is saying something to them that is very similar to what he walked through himself. I know with the help of the Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. he's saying something similar to them in verse 28. When you are not frightened, this, this whole thing I want to hear about, that you are in the Spirit, contending, not frightened, this is a clear sign. The word actually is omen. An, An omen. It is a sign, but there's something kind of ominous about that. It's an omen to them about their destruction but about your salvation, and this is from God. As opponents see a body of people claiming allegiance to another Lord together in grace, in love, proclaiming an alternative message together, they will say something different about them. They will know we are Christians by our love. They will see that we are citizens with hearts set on some other kingdom somewhere. And somehow in that, there is an omen. They see people live tearing down their idols in front of them. Happy in something else. There's an omen there and a sign of your deliverance spirit work deliverance. Now there's a lot of discussion about how that works exactly, people kind of guessing, you know, what, what, do, what do non-Christians see in us, what do we detect in ourselves? The point is, and that from God. In verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Did you see the beginning? It has been granted to you, That for the sake of Christ, you would not only believe, but also suffer for His sake. Granted. And this from God. Granted. A grace gift given. That you would believe? Indeed. We're accustomed to thinking about, God has given me a gift of faith. Gloriously. Oh. And suffering hmm, that's the piece we're going to have to return to next week because it's too long for we have now. The point is, this from God, granted. All of the suffering, all of the hardship, all of the opposition that will come to you comes to you from others indeed, but comes to you from them through God. It does not come to you independent of God. And if God, do you know God? Yes, you do. And if God determines this should come to you, and this should come to you, and this should come in this time and this way, if God determines that and gives it to you, a grace gift, he means to do something in other people and in you. Something He's up to something. We'll talk more about that next week but the point for now is to say God has his eye on me in putting this opposition in my life it is ordained that will not make it less physically painful but there is enabling power in facing it and not being afraid of it and being fearless It doesn't mean painless, fearless. Because the fear in it is that somehow there will be great loss delivered to me, either a fear that I'll be pried away from Christ or that I will lose some standing in this life, maybe even in eternity perhaps, if you think like that. That somehow I will have some loss, but if it's a grace gift from God, there will be no loss, though there may be pain. He only brings things to you that will be good, not that will be evil. Though they may mean it for evil, but he will mean it for good. He will ordain it for good. He will not even, if it's a given gift, if it is from him, he will not even afterwards say, wow, look at that. I have to figure out what to do with that. I'm wise. I figured it out. I know. I'll make it this. No, he's on the front end of it. Knowing what it is that we need, what kind of sign to them and to us we need, what kind of development, what kind of change in us we need. And he will bring that. Again, I'll say more about this next week. If you stop in the face of hardship and suffering and say, I don't understand this, I don't like this, this indeed truly hurts. This is painful. This is wicked. This is evil. If you can look at that and say, However, I also know from where that came. From whom that came. And I know Him. So if this has come from Him, if this has been given to me by Him, if He has ordained this, I have nothing to fear. I'm talking over my head here. I can imagine plenty of situations in the world in which opposition to the gospel is terrifying I've never experienced that myself but I can imagine it I think some in the room may have experienced it so I'm, I'm talking past my experience uh, I'm talking in faith That what God says to us is and in such situations would be true. That when He gives things to us, that He does good to us with them, perhaps even in ways that we don't understand. Setting our our heads and our hearts on him and believing him is the enabling piece behind not frightened in anything by your opponents. And you might add, comma, like me. I know whom I have believed and I know to whom I've entrusted myself and everything that I am. I know he has me, I know he holds me, and he only does good to me and He will deliver me. Maybe from death, but He will deliver me. That's true of us. I can't do anything other than just plead and pray that you would regard this as true, and therefore be separated from and really saved from Fear, not be frightened, save from fear that you would join with the body and contend for the faith of the gospel. I point that out. I plead and I pray that that would be the case. To live is Christ. To live as worthy citizens of the gospel is, is what we are required to do. And if you understand kingdoms, what you want to do. So He commands that of us. He provides some help in pointing out that every hardship comes from Him and He gives us His Spirit to be an aid to us. But in the end, he must make those things more real to us than the opposition that we face. So that's what we pray for. May God, in fact, make us worthy citizens. May God count us worthy of the kingdom. You're in the kingdom. I'm not saying, may He count you as one who has earned the kingdom. You're in the kingdom. But may He declare over us, that life matches the reality that I have given to you. That's what I'm talking about. May He make us to match. May He make us loyal, faithful, worthy citizens. Let's pray towards that end. God, would you meet your people now as... We sit here for a couple of minutes and reflect. Would you meet your people? Call them to faithfulness. Encourage them with your spirit. Remind them that, in fact, any hardship, but particularly hardships born in gospel advancement are under your hand and for our good. Remind us of that and build up a people who are worthy citizens of the Gospel. Thank you, Lord. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission.